Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 152nd episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest in today's podcast is Beverly Flaxington. Bev is the founder of The Collaborative, which provides sales training and organizational development support to financial services firms. What's unique about Bev, though, is the human behavioral coaching approach that she takes to trying to teach sales and business development skills, recognizing that in the end with financial advisors, as with our own clients, it's not just about knowing what to do, but figuring out how to change your behavior to actually do it. In this episode, we talk in depth about Bev's approach to sales training and how to conduct a meeting with a prospective new client, why it's so important to set up front for the prospect and expected outcome for the meeting, the importance of figuring out whether someone is a qualified prospect by determining if they're suited for your firm's services, willing to pay, and really ready to make a decision, how to get permission to ask deeper questions of the prospect to get to know them further, and why it's ultimately a kindness to a prospect to ask for their business when that moment comes instead of just waiting and praying for them to volunteer that they're ready to sign up with you. We also talk about the challenge of differentiating in today's crowded advisor marketplace, the value of having a niche, at least for your outbound marketing efforts, why getting more specific about exactly who you serve makes it both easier to generate referrals from existing clients and reduces that awkwardness of talking about what you do in social settings, and the importance of defining clear triggers so those who might refer to you know exactly what situations to watch out for that might be a good opportunity to refer. And be certain to listen to the end, where Bev talks about how advisors who find the sales process icky or uncomfortable can reframe it in their own minds to understand that in the end, selling is simply about letting people know what you do, how you can help them, that you genuinely want to work with them and do good work, and that your job is simply to help them make a decision they're confident about, which hopefully will end up being to hire you to do the work. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Beverly Flaxington. Welcome, Bev Flaxington, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. I'm so happy to be here, Michael. Thank you so much. I'm I'm really excited to have you on the the podcast today because I, I will admit you are you are someone whose work I have I followed for from afar for many years, ever since you had put out a book, I, I think probably like five years ago now, that was called the, the Pocket Guide to Sales for Financial Advisors. And I, I don't even remember quite what had led me to it in the first place. But as someone who I will fully admit is is not a particularly skilled person when it comes to sales, I, I basically failed out of my first industry sales job and stuck around out of, out of sheer stubbornness. Your book left a really strong impression on me because it it had an interesting way of just reframing what it means to be trying to do sales when we're when we're coming to the table as as a a helper not just not just here to sell a product that you know, you, you had framed this in your book as like you want to help them they need your help but that doesn't mean you can or should just sit around and wait for them to come to that conclusion and figure it out themselves it's okay to try to nudge them along on this process and just help them understand why it is you have value and do this good thing for people and that that's not a 
That's not a bad thing. That's not a dirty sales thing as, as we sometimes talk about it. You just at some point have to actually open the door for people and let them walk through it to work with you. And it just, it left a really strong and striking impression to me because I had, I had feel like I'd always felt the sort of the dirty side of sales. And here is this other completely different worldview of, no, you're just, you're trying to help people. You want to help them. They know they probably need help, but not everybody just gets off their duff and does that. So sometimes you help them along. It's just helping them help themselves. That's okay, right? I love everything that you're saying. You know, one of the things, Michael, when I came to start working with advisors, because I did start my career in sales and the institutional business, 401k, where it's okay to be a salesperson. In fact, we celebrate it. We honor right. it. You know, we do all this classic overcoming of objections and everything. Right. And put it up on a board so everybody can see who's <laughs> so- doing the best and get all of the competitive sales juices going, which I know there's a portion of the industry out there that does that and still does that. It's like more more power to them, but I don't think they have a, they don't have a problem. They're doing fine. Like it's, it's the rest of us that didn't come to this to sell things. We came to it to help people. And it's like, I want to help people. I don't want to sell them. Well, and even add on what I always say to advisors, you know, you, you think about people take the financial advisory track because they love the investment side of it. You know, they love the numbers, their investment people, you, you, the CFA, the CFP credentials. You know, it's a highly educated, theoretical type profession, right? And, and I remember first being in sales and seeing, you know, cartoons that it would be like, well, you, when you can't do anything else, what do you do? You sell for a living, right? Because what kind of skills does that take? You just sit at the bar, you talk to people and you're done. And so I think that there's this disconnect. It's almost like a devaluing in the mind of the advisor. Like I work so hard to get these credentials and now you're asking me to do something that any Tom, Dick or Harry could do. And, you know, I'm not going to be very good at it anyway. Well, and like there's even extension to it. I spent all this time and effort. I learned all this stuff. Like everybody should just see that I'm like, I'm smart and I know things and they should want to pay me because I'm going to help them. Like, can't they see this for themselves? How valuable I am. And, And then it, and then it hurts when they don't quite get there all by themselves. Oh my goodness. I mean, you really, I I teach an entrepreneurship class at a college in Boston, and this is what I tell my entrepreneurship students. I'm like, you're in love with your product and service. Guess what? Nobody else understands why they should be in love with it. And it's the same thing for an advisor. You know, they will believe because I'm doing the best job for my clients. I am, you know, smarter than the advisor around the corner, whatever it may be. Everyone is able to see that. But I tell them, you know, they have a responsibility in my view, right? Like you're dealing with people's finances other than health and family, what is closer to someone's heart? And in some people's lives, finances might trump, you know, health and family, right? And so, so this is such a powerful life changing thing that advisors are doing in someone's life. And in my view, you have a responsibility to get out there and let people know that you're available. It's not selling, it's informing. So that's a good reframing. I think we're going to have a few of these as we go. So it's not selling, it's informing. Because if you think about it, 
how does the average, I mean, think about our business, right? And I love all of the things that you write about because it, it takes a step back. Think about our business. Those of us in the business can disagree, misunderstand. You know, I like to make the joke that you put five investment advisors in a room and pick any jargon term in our industry and ask them what it means. And you could very well <laughs> get five different answers, right? I and, mean, and we're supposed to be the experts with like the consensus understanding <laughs> of how this stuff works. I mean, right? Like we, we don't even agree on what it is. You know, well, can you explain that to me a little bit? What's your view on that? So now we have the outside investor who doesn't come from our business, who, you know, maybe made their money, I don't know, inventing some crazy widget or whatever. And we have this expectation that somehow they're just going to understand not only what we do, but why it's important to them, how we're able to help them, and then why it is that they should be able to pay the fee. I mean, just think of that just logically on the face of it. How is that really even possible? I like this framing of it's not selling, it's informing that I think there is this challenge trap that we just all get into. I, I suppose it's a it's a version of the curse of knowledge, right? Like sometimes we know so much we just sort of forget how not that much everybody else knows and don't adjust our explanations accordingly or or, or our views accordingly. And and I think there's a version of that for all of us in in advisor world, not just around the the financial stuff we try to teach and advise on, but just our value and what we do that like you can't assume everybody else knows and immediately understands what you do just because you you said you're a financial advisor or you said, well, we do comprehensive financial planning or or all these you know, labels we have around the stuff that we do. Because as you noted, like if we can't even agree on jargon terms, you put 10 people in the room and say, well, what does it mean to have really a truly comprehensive financial plan? Because we all say we do comprehensive planning. Like, what does a comprehensive plan really mean? And you get 10 different answers. And yeah. like, if we don't agree, how on earth does the next prospective client have any clue what we say we're doing because we say we're advisors and do comprehensive planning? And because, you know, Michael, let's even take it a step further. And we talk about this a lot. So because you think about even some of the words that we take for granted. So we might be doing, say, value prop work with an advisor. Okay, so what's special about what you do? What's different? Well, I'm independent. Okay, so an RIA, an independent RIA sees that as a valuable thing because in their mind, they're comparing themselves, say, to an advisor at a brokerage firm, right? So who's not independent. But, you know, the irony is, I did this very large group at a brokerage firm one day. I said, just out of curiosity, how many of you would describe yourselves as independent? And of course, everyone in the room raised their hand because they believe they're independent thinkers too. I'm an I'm at an independent broker dealer. And in, exactly right. I mean, I'm I'm independent in the way I think. So so even something as simple as that, that to an advisor they look at it and they say, well, it's very clear cut. But it really isn't. And so how could we have an expectation if we're not putting thought behind the selling process, you know, how it is you're going into the market, how you're telling your story, that we can think that the audience is going to have any chance of understanding it when really even the most simple of terms is not that clear cut to those of us in the business. So I think that's the part that so gets missed is that, you know, it, it isn't like we're even that clear how 
we can define amongst one another. And to your point about, you know, it's fascinating watching what's going on right now with planning, the spectrum around that. But but you have to put the muscle behind really crystallizing how you talk about what you do and explaining to the people you think you can help why it's going to be valuable to them because they're not going to infer it and they're sure as heck not going to come looking for you unless they've been triggered to do so or somebody else has told them to unless you're out there you know and clear about the value that you're adding. Well, and, I, and I'm struck by it as well that, you know, labels like I'm, I'm independent are a good example where, well, lots of people actually use that in the industry in a lot of different channels where even people in some independent channels say the people in the other independent channel are less independent than they are, which, <laughs> yep. which may or may not technically be true, but like really good luck explaining that to the client. I, I feel like overall as, as just the, the landscape has gotten, I guess, a, a little bit more competitive. There are fewer prospective clients out there that aren't attached to someone that in some way calls themselves a financial advisor today, that it almost feels like we're spending more and more time just trying to differentiate ourselves from each other, which isn't a bad thing, but we spend so much more time trying to differentiate ourselves from each other that I feel like we don't even get around to actually saying what we do for clients sometimes. We just mostly try to spend our time saying why we're better than the other people. I'm 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 more independent or or I'm more fiduciary or that other person acts less in your best interest than I do. And and which is horrifically difficult and subjective to even figure out whether that's true or not. And 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 I feel like we put clients in a position to try to basically figure out whose word is right. Yes. When when they don't have the expertise or the knowledge of the industry to even make these distinctions or understand why they're meaningful. And you know, you you just keyed on something that I think is so important for, for us to talk about, which is being able to articulate what it is like to to work with you as an advisor. We sometimes call it the client experience, but I've had so many situations where, you know, we exactly as you say, an advisor will be explaining why they're different. And, you know, we have to push on them because, well, okay, we hear that all the time. Or I tell the story about a retail bank that we work with and they had us come in because they're, they're people that sit in the branches who for years just sold you an annuity. No matter what you walked in to do, annuity was the answer. And yeah. you know, they just invested millions of dollars to put in one of the major planning software to connect it to Morningstar, to get in Salesforce, because they said, you know what, guys, you're advisors. You're not just annuity salespeople. And so, so we're seeing this happening all over. So this advisor right. term, right, is getting applied in so many places. So then, you know, we ask an advisor in practice, so what's the client experience? And oftentimes their answer is, you know, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean? Like, put yourself in the shoes of someone working for you. What does it feel like? What do they think about it? What are they going to get? What's going to happen to them at each step? What can, you know, their expectation be of short-term, long-term outcome? And I'm just always stunned how it's really tough for many advisors to articulate it. It's it's like they're, they're so close to it, or I think sometimes you know, assumptions just get made that it's clear or that it's the same or that it's predictable, but there's so much richness in being able to step back and really look at that lens, you know, through the eyes of somebody who might be working with you. 
Yeah. Well, and it strikes me that as we get in this world of we're all advisors, whatever exactly that means, that we become so undifferentiated to to clients that I'm always I'm always struck. You know, if you go to pretty much any website today that has some kind of find a financial advisor platform, CFP board has one, NAPFA has one, FPA has one. There are a couple of uh, standalone paid platforms out there. For for virtually every platform that you go to, when you think about it, like the first thing that you enter into that website to find you know the person to whom you may give your life savings and rely upon for the next 10, 20, 30 years, the very first search criterion is zip code, <laughs> right? It's all geography-based mm-hmm. search. Mm-hmm. And, and so when you, when you think about like, at the end of the day, the primary way that a prospective client decides who to give their life savings to is whether the zip code of the advisor is geographically convenient to their home or office. It kind of hurts to think about that way when I when I look even the in even the context of our own advisory firm because we 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 get some clients from platforms like this, but then like yeah we get some local clients from from platforms like this that we we become so undistinguishable to the average consumer that I guess whoever is convenient to my house for driving purposes actually becomes literally the number one screening criterion. To figure out who to talk to. Imagine that though, right? When you think about, honestly, like I, I just have the best doctor. I love her. She's great. She's so far away from me. There's a gazillion ones that are closer. I'm not going to them. I trust her. I like her. I want to go where she is. And it's the same sort of thing, right? As an advisor, not to mention Michael, I mean, think about, you know, in this age of Skyping and being able to zoom and conference calls. And I mean, I love my advisor. I don't really care to have him show up here or for me to go there any more than necessary. I'm perfectly happy with a phone call and I don't care if he's sitting in Montana or California. And on the other side of it though, and I know you can appreciate this and and you talk about this so much and it's one of my favorite topics, but, you know, ask an advisor to define, you know, with whom they best work, right? Their market. And, and, And it's incredible to me how many still will give you an answer that's an AUM based answer. And, and, and I'm like, you know, in my entire life, I have to admit there's never been once that I've identified myself by my, you know, yeah. investable net worth. <laughs> like it's just you know, my, my <laughs> ideal clients are people who have enough money to pay me and live within five to 10 miles of my office. Yeah, exactly. And again, like I'm, I'm why well, I hope we're not too, like too deeply offending anyone who's listening. Like I'm not trying to pick on our collective sort of advisor marketing strategies that we've done, but like just to recognize that this is what we're doing. Exactly. This is what we're actually doing. Like the people I work with are people who are within X miles of my office and my zip code who have at least Y dollars. And if they're that undifferentiated to us and we're that undifferentiated to them, like this is why growth is getting so hard. And, and Michael, in fairness, right? Like, so when we talk about this with the listeners, I mean, I think that the part of it that we want to be thinking about is I've sat in so many advisors' offices, though, who are burdened. They're actually burdened with clients who are not paying them enough money, who don't really fit their business model, who aren't really the types of people they want to be working with. And so that's the outcome, right? It's like yeah. if, if this approach was 
gaining you the sorts of clients that you really want and your practice was robust and you've got loads of new clients coming in, it's fine. But unfortunately for many advisors, it is broken and it it makes me sad because I do believe, you know, all the advisors we see and we work with are doing a phenomenal job. Like there's so much heart in this business and so much of a desire to do the right thing and, and a real calling to help people change their lives. So that's the part for me that's the disconnect, right? I I don't think, you know, not saying that people are doing it on purpose because what they really want to do is add so much value, but it's the way that they go about doing it that's so broken in many, many cases. So, So let's talk a little bit more about that, about kind of these these dynamics of you know marketing and how do we actually stand out and differentiate because I unless you're really just in a remote area where you truly are the only advisor in like X miles and radius of your zip code, <laughs> how should we be trying to market to differentiate and stand out? And then what should that sales process actually look like? So I do really feel very strongly in today's climate, you know, having some sort of a designated niche is absolutely critical. And I mean, I I just wrote about this again because I was at another session where, you know, we get the feedback from advisors saying, I don't want to be limited. I'll sometimes ask advisors in a room, I'll say, given what you do, you know, how many of you could basically, as long as someone has enough money to make it worthwhile, could basically work with anybody. It doesn't matter their age, marital status, career. And of course they raise their hands because this sort of work, you know, there's a lot of people out there that need it, but it just makes it very challenging from a marketing perspective and to stand out and to try to communicate in a way that you're going to catch someone's attention. So I try to explain that it really is more about that outbound process. Doesn't mean that if somebody comes to you who doesn't fit the niche, so to speak, that you have to say no, although sometimes that is the right answer. But being able to define who those people are, I think, is is key. And then be able to use language that speaks to them. So I, I think often of an advisor that I had, he's down actually in the Texas area. And I mean, just a genuinely phenomenal guy, but just could not get traction, could not get traction former oil executive. And so I was like, well, what do you know about people in the oil industry? Well, and he started talking. I said, well, then get that in your marketing materials, go to where you used to work and talk to people. And, you know, just exploded his business based on that. Because it's like, he's one of us, right? The response is he's one of us. He gets us. He's talking our language. So I think that's a really key piece. What, What is, you know, who are you targeting? What's the language that's going to appeal to them? And then being able to, again, that client experience, paint the picture for them of, you know, what triggers might they have that would make them want to need an advisor? And then when they come to you, what's that experience going to be like? What are you going to take them through? Because I feel like that's where the human side of what you all do really comes to bear. I mean, I tell advisors all the time, the yes, it's, you know, becoming somewhat of a commodity business and this retail bank guy could look just like the sophisticated RIA over here. However, 
all of what comes to bear is who is this person? What's our culture like? How do we deliver what we deliver? How do clients feel and think about us? And I think that's the part where there's so much opportunity to bring that to the forefront and really attract someone's attention, you know, rather than tax efficient strategies and, you know, legacy planning, which are, you know, what do those even mean to a lot of clients? So how do you talk through with an advisor who's still saying, but I, I just don't want to take the chance of narrowing my, you know, my, my target market of who I can work with. Like, I, I feel like that's still the number one sort of objection that I hear in this world of sales and overcoming objections. So we'll, we'll do our sales process here for our listeners. Like, how do, how do we overcome this objection of, but I, I just don't want to overly limit myself? So there's a couple of pieces to this. First of all, I don't think that, you know, you have to have, say, only one niche. It, I tell advisors, it's really okay if you want to have a couple of niches. And I think that you can talk about the value that you bring because it. I've honestly just never seen an advisor who gets good at this, who really does invest in niche marketing, who redoes their marketing, their story and everything. I've honestly, in all the years of doing this, Michael, never had someone come back to me and say, you can't believe that I just learned I missed out on this, you know, $25 million opportunity because I was talking about these people over here and not that person over there. If if somebody wants to work with you, they learn about you, they get referred. I, I mean, I would liken it to our business. I, I grew up in the investment business. I love this business. So what we do is targeted only to this industry. If you're a custodian, or asset management firm, advisor, we will work with you. If a bio, you know, tech company calls me, I'm going to say that's not what we do. But that said, I will sometimes have advisors who are married to someone and they say, you know what, my wife's company is doing this event. Is there any way you'd just go talk about, you know, this human behavior stuff or whatever? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. We're going to go, but are we going to spend all of our energies now marketing to that? No. So it's not like you can't still have opportunities come to you if the world is your oyster, who has enough money to create marketing that is broad enough to cast the net and be able to grab the entire world? It's just going to make your life so much easier if you target, if you message, and then when you get embedded in a community, whatever it is, and they learn about you, back to where we started, Michael, like the selling process becomes so much easier because you're one of them. You know, and I see, I've seen advisors where they'll do it around their passion, right? I had a guy who would tell you he couldn't sell his way out of a paper bag, no matter what he did. And, you know, we got him involved in some charitable stuff that he was just so passionate about boxing, these events that they put on boxing. I mean, and he, this guy just lives and breathes it, but guess what? Everyone involved with this charity, wealthy people with friends, with family, he does nothing other than go there, meet people, expand the network, and he's loving it. Like that's the, and it came, you know, came to me, he's like, I can't, I love selling. I'm like, yeah, that's because you're not really selling right now. <laughs> you're just doing what you love. So, so how do folks who maybe are, are, at least somewhat convinced, you know, okay, maybe I'll, maybe I'll try this and try to get more targeted. How do I pick one? Which niche do I pick? What are the good niches? How do I pick the, the right 
niche? So there's a couple of different things I would say to think about. One really is if you are passionate about something, I had an advisor not too long ago and he said, you know, it's funny if I look at my client base, the people that I'm currently working with, and again, let's be clear, he didn't fire any of them. He's still working with them. Everything's still going fine, but he did want to get more focused for the purpose of growth. And so he said, you know, what I'm really passionate about is, you know, women business owners who are running successful businesses and who really want to start to think about succession and and monetizing the business. Okay. He had no clients in that bucket, but he, but he said, you know, this is something that I've always cared about. I've, I have a couple friends that fit in this camp. And so he's now building his business around that. So that's one way, right? So it's like, there's something I love. And so I really want to focus on it. Another way is looking at your existing client base and looking for links And what I find happens a lot is that advisors aren't putting this lens on it. Like they may segment by assets or they'll segment by revenue or they may segment by career or something. But if you start to look at are there connections with hobbies or there connections with career path, it could be anything from religious affiliation to gender identification. I mean, all these different things, disabled children, whatever. And, and a lot of times advisors will come back and say, you know, I've never noticed, but I do have six or seven clients or 12 or 15 clients who all have this characteristic. Okay, so now we do start to see something that we could build from. So that's another opportunity. The other thing is like my friend in Texas, you know, the oil executive, if you come from somewhere, if you are knowledgeable about an industry, or it could just generally be a passion. I had a gentleman out in the Midwest and young guy really struggling to kind of kickstart his business. And we just started talking one day about what he's passionate about, what he loves. And, and boating was one of these things. And so there's these high end deals dealers that sell boats to the very wealthy. Well, having a partnership with them makes a lot of sense. And so he jokes because he's like, now I get to do something I love, but be around other wealthy people who love this too. And I'm building my business. I I don't know that there's, you know, kind of one in the box way to think about it. I think there's different ways to think about it. And I think you can be as narrow or as broad. Some people will tell us, well, I work with people in transition. Unfortunately for a lot of us, we don't identify ourselves as in transition. Like, I'm not sure my kids are now going off to college. Am I in transition? I don't know. What does that mean? <laughs> you know, is that, a, right. is, is, is that an event or not an event? So, so that that broad can be a little challenging in my view, but if it's, you know, women going through divorce or five years from retirement, and that's how you define transition, then define it because that I can relate to and say, oh, okay, yeah, that's me. Let me learn more about what that advisor does. Well, and I think you made a good point there that kind of this distinction between saying I'm, I'm, you know, I work with people in transition versus I, I work with women going through a divorce, you know, parentheses, which is a transition that you, when you say I work with people in transition, a lot of people in those transitions still, that is not their identity. That's not how they think about themselves. So they're not necessarily looking for 
a solution to that problem. When you get more specific, I work with women going through a divorce or I, I work with women going through a difficult divorce, which frames up a whole different subset of people that now suddenly there's a level of specificity that you know, I may not identify myself as being a person in transition, but I can definitely identify myself as someone who's going through a difficult divorce, and I know who my friends are who are going through a difficult divorce. And so suddenly this goes from a little bit more of a fuzzy concept to, oh, wow, when you get that specific, it's actually really easy to start thinking of and finding people who fit that, that need, that problem, that description. And that they can self-identify. And I think you you keyed on another thing that's so important. A lot of times when we might talk with advisors, say about they want to increase client referrals, say. So I'll say, well, you know, and they'll say, well, I ask clients regularly. I'm really good at bringing this up. And I ask them sometimes, well, what sort of language do you use? And they say, well, you know, I, I might sit down with you, for example, Bev, and I would say, I really enjoy working with you. We have a great relationship. You know, I would love to work with more people like you. And and I, I like to stop them there because I don't know who's like me. I don't know what aspects you're talking about. Is it a mother of three kids? Is it someone who owns a business? Is it an investment professional? Like, what about me? And oh, by the way, if I think about all of my connections, I can't think of anyone, not that I'm so special, but for all of us, who's exactly like me. Right. And so- what exactly are you talking about? And, and so this is sometimes I think where advisors will get a little bit stuck because the more you can really help me identify either I'm a prospect and again, difficult divorce, oh boy, that's me. I need to talk with you. Or, you know, like you because they are women business owners who blah, blah, blah. Oh yeah. So I know about six of those, but I think we take for granted, and this goes back to what we kind of started with, that the audience, the clients, the prospects out there understand things at the same level that we understand it. And it's just not the case. We really have to be so clear and specific and give them the chance to recognize themselves and recognize why we're valuable to them or could be valuable to them. And so like I love this framing around just the the impact of what happens when you when you get more specific and I know what still feels to me like this unfortunately I don't dub, double edged sword that the specificity is actually what makes it connect better to the prospective client or the, or the person who might be referred to us and the specificity seems to be the thing that we fear the most <laughs> as the advisor Because we seem to always get stuck on all the people who won't fit the specific definition instead of all the people we'll connect with because we have a specific definition. And that's where, you know, so sometimes as a start, I mean, it can be ripping the Band-Aid off, right, for some people. So sometimes as a start, we'll say, you know, maybe you pick a couple of categories and maybe you can keep them broader. 
we were just working with a client on a website and, you know, they wanted to have some pages that are speaking directly to their audience, but it's not, you know, like so granular. I, I mean, like, you know, young professionals say, well, that could span, you know, 20 years worth of people that could be in loads of different sorts of organizations and roles. And, but what they did is they just talked about as you're, you know, maturing in your career, maturing in your life, there are different sorts of things you're going to face than say the advisor who's working with somebody who's on the verge of retirement. And so you don't have to if it's kind of that concern of, I don't want to be in the box and heck, I'm not even sure if I'm going to like this niche and are there enough people out there? I think you can kind of start a little bit broader, but you do have to find some way to be able to describe. So I talk about it as the triggers, right? Somebody has to be able to recognize what you're able to help them with, and then what the experience is going to be. And then there has to be something about the way you convey what you do that they can recognize themselves in it. Because if, you know, I just sold my company, I'm 35 years old, and you're talking about retirement, which that's a whole other topic, right? A lot of younger people, they're not they're not putting things in 401k. Like they want to yep. figure out how to save money, travel the world 10 times. So their language is even a lot different than ours has traditionally been in this industry, I think. But anyway, 35-year-old tech that you know goes to the website, all the languages around retirement, yeah, you're probably not going to hook that person. But I guess I would just challenge, you know, as we're having this conversation, right, challenge you to think about you, the advisor saying, I don't want to get in the box. But if your language is so broad, is that tech, you know, executive going to recognize themselves anyway? So, so it is a dilemma because if you don't do it and you stay so high level and so broad, you know, you're just casting a big net and hoping that, somebody's going to go to one of those websites and put in your zip code. <laughs> and so I'm fascinated by this framing of triggers. Can you talk to us a little bit more about just what are triggers? How do I think about triggers? How do I define my triggers or the triggers I want to use? Yes. And so that's another thing that, you know, I think those of us who are in the business, we, I think about just conversations I get into all the time with friends of mine, you know, they'll just talk about something that's happening in their life. And I'm saying, are you talking to a financial professional about this? It's just, no, why would I do that? Because they don't see it as some sort of a, of a trigger, but triggers are kind of almost like any sort of life event that might wind somebody up sitting in an advisor's office. And they can be the big things, inheritance, you know, retirement, death of spouse, you know, all the big ones that we know. But there are also a lot of, of smaller things. Like I feel like, especially when we talk about the planning aspect of what you all do, I have a lot of advisors who say that they bring so much value because I want to buy the second home. Does it make a lot of sense right now? How do I think about this? You know, is it the best thing to actually just, you know, pack the 529 or should I be thinking about saving for college in a different way? And oh, by the way, when I start to get to college and I'm paying for my kids, how do I want to think about where I'm taking the money from? And does it even make sense for me to buy the home in the first place or given the other things I want to do? So it's kind of all these decisions 
decisions that we make all along the way. And unfortunately, I think we've kind of created this impression for a lot of investors out there that, you know, you don't need an advisor until you get to the point where you've amassed enough money that you've got something to worry about. But there's so many different triggers that we have along the way that could mean it would be worthwhile to just sit down and have a conversation with someone. But I think we have to call them out to people because I don't know that, you know, the general population recognizes it the same way we would recognize it. I think about this. I I mean, you're probably so much closer to this than I am, but I've had so many times advisors would say, oh, if only that client had come to me before they made that bad decision. If only they had come to me, right, to consult with me on that. Oh, gosh, I wish that I had been with them two years ago before such and such. So how do we... We got to get the message out there before whatever that bad decision is, you ought to come in and talk with us. But I think we just have to really be clear about what these things are. So somebody goes, oh, I didn't know that I could go in and talk to an advisor about that. That's probably not a bad idea. Well, and, and to me, that again is part of the the trigger that comes from when you start getting more specific about who you're serving. I think for a lot of us, I'm like, well, I... I know what the trigger is. Like any life transition is a trigger. I mean, hey, anything that happens can be uh yes. can can be a trigger. So, like, why don't you just refer everybody you know anytime anything happens to you? <laughs> Which is sort of exactly. what, what we what we end out with. And then clients can't think of anybody. And because they can't think of like a specific person with a specific thing at that specific moment. So they say, like, yo, I'll let you know if 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 I can think of someone. Whereas when you get super specific, you know, hey, uh, we we specialize in women going through a difficult divorce. So if you know anybody who is going through a difficult divorce, like we'd love to to talk to them and see if we can help. If I just say that, like I'm I'm sure for everybody who's listening now, we got a lot of we got a lot of folks that like just saying that a whole bunch of people right now are thinking of a yes. friend or family member who is going through a divorce, and so like the mere fact that we picked a thing suddenly makes it so much more concrete and more referable, but it also has to be believable. So like I I could give you a list of 27 of these, but then nobody really wants to refer me off of a list of 27 because now like my credibility comes into question as to whether I'm really actually an expert on 12, 27 of these things. Right. Part to me of, of what makes this so powerful is like, I do this one thing. I'm awesome at this one thing. If you know anyone in this well, you know, particular high stakes scenario, like that's what I do. And that's part of what makes it so incredibly powerful. You know, for for so many of us today, you know, if you if you well, we've all had the experience, like you go to a cocktail party and someone says, What do you do? And I say, I'm a financial advisor, and like they take a step back. Or we come up with a euphemism for financial advisor, so we don't even have to say I'm a financial advisor, right? We're like, I'm a, well, I'm a personal CFO to my clients, or whatever things we come up with. <laughs> yes. Because it's too awkward to say financial advisor now that suddenly when you get more specific, it gets, to me, it also gets less awkward. We, what do I do? Well, I, I work with women going through a difficult divorce to try to help them rebuild their financial future. Yeah, it's a story. Yeah, it's actually like, interesting. Oh, well, funny you mentioned that. Like my, you know, I've got a friend that's going through that exactly right. Like it just, the specificity prompts something and we don't have to do this awkward dance of like, I'm a financial advisor or a financial quarterback or a personal CFO of my clients or, or you know, try to come up with these, 
you know, witty elevator speech kinds of lines, like just get real specific about a particular problem that you solve and people just start connecting the dots in their own, in their own heads, whatever it is. Oh, I know a person who's, who's going through that. Like you do that. Like she's in a lot of pain. Like I, I'm going to put her in touch with you when I, when I get out of this cocktail party and like, boom, like you're, you're, you're making connections because the specificity makes it easy for people to figure out who the right fit is. And the fact that you're so specific actually creates a natural credibility, I think, around it as well. Well, and you know, there's there's two pieces too to what you just said that I think are so poignant in this discussion. I mean, one is I, I couldn't help thinking, you know, when you tell somebody, right, don't think about the pink elephant. Yeah. <laughs> of course everybody's mind. Mm-hmm. So so you keyed on something that is so important about the way our minds work. If you ask me something that is this very general, very broad, open-ended thing, I cannot zero in on something. But if you ask me something very specific, it's almost like the pink elephant. I can't help. My mind yeah. now starts to go through that ticket, 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 ticket thing where I'm thinking, do I know anybody going through a difficult divorce right now? And so there is this, you know, homing pigeon type thing that goes on with the mind that the more specific you are, the better able you are to give it the chance to call up an answer to something. But another piece of it is, so now here you are at that cocktail party. You say this about divorced women. So I'm talking, so my mind kind of goes through the Rolodex. I actually can't think, but I say to you, but are you kind of just like a general advisor? You know, my sister's not going through a divorce, but she's a single mom and she just is actually trying to figure out what to do with this big 401k she's got. So do you not talk to people like her? And see that, Michael, is where you do still get opportunities outside of the niche and you get the chance to say, well, our sweet spot is working with, but I'd be happy to have a conversation with your sister. So I think it's weird because it also often is this freedom because you've been a little bit more interesting and you've given somebody a a bit of a different tidbit that now they have almost like this willingness or this interest in finding finding a way to engage with you. Well, and, and I find as well, just in, in having these sorts of conversations that like in practice, I usually don't even get someone that like tries to make an, a connection to someone else with another situation. It's sort of like, well, you know, I, I specialize in pink elephants and someone's like, well, I know a gray elephant. Well, no, like once you say pink elephant, all we can really think about is pink elephant. Like you kind of get fixated on it. Either I am a, you know, I am a pink elephant or if I'm not, I'm trying to think of a pink elephant, but like our brains don't even usually go somewhere else. Like if I say I specialize in women going through a difficult divorce, your head's pretty much just trying to think of women that you know that have gone through a difficult divorce that you can say something and make some connection in this conversation you're usually not even thinking of, well, I know a whole bunch of other people who happen to not be women going through difficult divorce, but hey, maybe they could work with you too. Like, I'm sure you meet a lot of people in your life, but usually don't refer them to me at a cocktail party. <laughs> exactly. But when you get more specific, all of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh, like Joni right over there is going through a difficult <laughs> divorce. Like, you two should talk. You should talk to her. <laughs> exactly. And, and, you, and you're getting introduced at the at the cocktail party. Like it's, it's just the nature of what happens when that, when that specificity comes And And I mean, what always strikes me just for, for advisors that you kind of balk at you, know, well, well, what happens if I get more specific, what, you know, what happens to all the, all the people I'm excluding who, who aren't going to be a fit. And, 
and to just say like honestly are you getting that many referrals now exactly i mean if you are like more power to you if you got a thing that's working and you're you're getting your 10 20 or 30 new clients a year or whatever you're trying to do to fill up your your client base like more power to you but you know the irony i find for a lot of advisors even that are thinking about this this path it's like well i I, I kind of like to do this, but I'm afraid of all the all the clients that you know that I may lose out on a chance on by getting more specific. It's like, well, how many new clients did you get last year? Like, well, well, like five, and like how many of them were actually a good fit versus just someone you took because kind of showed up? Like, well, two or three. And it's like, well, how much do we really have to lose here? Because <laughs> you're not growing that well in the first place, and like, not not to be harsh, but just. There's this phenomenon that I find where if we feel like we don't get enough business coming in, we try to cast the net wider, and it just makes us even more undifferentiated, and then even less business comes in, and like we get scared of making the net narrower and more focused, but we've actually made it so wide that it's almost not producing much growth anyways now. I mean, I was really, you know, as we're talking, I'm I'm going through kind of like talk about Rolodex, right? Different advisors. And I'm thinking about situations where, you know, the advisor wasn't wired to be a salesperson back to, to how yep. we started this. They really don't like it, resist it. And in every single case, the way that we could find to help them explode their business is through focusing on that niche. Now, I'm going to say that in some cases, advisors have really good deep client relationships. They haven't done niche. They've got all sorts of different people. And if you can uh, appeal to your clients in a certain way and be very defined about who you're trying to help and get a little bit more direct about engaging them. Yes, I have also seen advisors grow their business from those referrals. But if you're trying to kind of figure out how do I explode this thing, it really is the best way to do it. And think about COIs. I mean, that's a whole other area, Michael, right? And and the number of times that we've tried to, you know, we've been helping an advisor say with their value prop. And so we've tried to get from the COI, maybe some language to use, or how do they differentiate? I have to tell you, to most COIs out there, all advisors look exactly the same. And so they may, on the likability scale, you know, hey, I like Michael better than I like Bev, so I'll call him in more. But from the perspective of exactly what's being offered, but when, again, you can describe to them, well, when you have clients who look like this, who are going through this, who are experiencing this, and this is how we help them, the same dynamic happens with the COI. Oh my goodness. Well, I'm going to send you all my divorcees who are, you know, in difficult situations. If that's your sweet spot, right? Well, and that's, and that's part of what happens, right? I, I, you know, I go to a COI who inevitably already has some relationships with some other advisors because, you know, anybody that visible has usually been, been solicited some other times. And, and so, you know, I can either go in and try to be, as you said, more, more likable. And I don't, I don't know if I'm going to win that battle. Or we can sort of do the like, well, you know, I'm sure you have some other relationships, but like, just give me a few, like, just give me a few clients. I'm sure you're going to refer to others, but like, just give me a few, which is sort of a just awkward, I don't know, like to me, it feels like an awkward beggaring sort of thing. Like, come on, can I just have like a few scraps, you know, would feel great to us, but like what's in it for the COI to say like, oh, I don't really know you that well, but sure, I'll just go ahead and like diversify my referrals for no particular reason that I didn't need to do in the first place. 
my highly valued clients, yeah. right? That I have a reputation with. But but when you go and say, well, you know, I, I'm sure you have some other advice that you work with, but you know, we we specialize in women going through a difficult divorce. So if you if you ever, you know, if you're doing a tax return for someone and they're all stressed out because it's their first time filing separately after having gone through the divorce and they're stressing about all their financial issues, like I'd love to work with you and that client to to help them because that's all we do is is work with women going through a difficult divorce. I don't care if that COI accountant already has a relationship. Next time that accountant is sitting down with a recent divorcee doing their first you know, tax return as an individual, you are going to come to mind now. Like you have, yes. you have planted that seed. You know, if you ever sit across from a divorcing woman preparing her first tax return as a solo, don't think of a pink elephant. Yes. Yes. You built this association and, and now I've got a way to break in with a you even a COI who already has existing relationships with other advisors. Like I don't want all of them and I'm not just asking for my arbitrary quote fair share. Like I specialize in this particular thing. I'm great at these people. I know you're inevitably going to see some of them at some point. So like just let me help them cuz candidly I'm better at them than the person you're working with. I know I'm not going to say I'm better at everything than the person you're working with. Like I'm better at these clients. So let me help you help them. And think about this too, because so we often will get asked about COI strategy, right? COI marketing. And first of all, I would say, and if again, if we go back to the kind of the sales perspective, I don't think enough advisors think of a COI. I ask them to think of them as a prospect. A lot of times it's a little bit of one and done, right? That that COI knows me. I went right. in, I spoke with them. They know what I do. So you really do have to, like you would any prospect, cultivate a relationship relationship. But again, some of what you're saying, you know, I, my mind's going to, so can you imagine now you come across some important article about tax filings, the first year divorce? Well, you get to email the COI and say, I thought this would be interesting to you the next time this person comes in. Oh, and you get to send them an article on the topic yep. or you get to call them to say, so, so it just gives you this nice platform to work from when otherwise, again, we're back to this whole general you know, maybe I learned what they like to do on vacation and I can send them a follow-up, but I can't do a lot past that. But if we have a, a common ground around the niche and elements of the niche, it gives me ways to continue to touch in with that COI too. And from a sales perspective, that's another great way to continue to cultivate the relationship. So, so let me shift tracks a little bit to talk like we've kind of talked about the marketing side, differentiating by getting specific at, at who you serve because it makes people's brains start making those connections and shift over to the actual sales side. Because as I mentioned earlier, I was just, I was fascinated by reading your book and the way for me, it just crystallized this different way of thinking around sales as like, you want to help them. They need your help. We all kind of know this. But sometimes people just don't get there on their own, or it takes them a while to get there. And there, there's there's nothing wrong with helping them along that journey and just expediting it a little bit more. Like you're not you're not pushing them, you're not trying to get them to buy anything they wouldn't have bought anyways. You're just trying to get them to the thing that we all know they should buy, but human inertia is a powerful thing. And so if you're gonna help them overcome inertia, like it's okay to do something to try to help them overcome inertia. 
Yes. And so a couple things that I think are really key on the topic of kind of classic selling, if you will. One is it is imperative to have a sales plan. So most business leaders are going to have a business plan, and that's great, also imperative, but a sales plan says, what exactly am I targeting to? How many clients you did it earlier, right? You talked about numbers. I'm 20 new clients this year. You know, what sort of revenue are we looking for? How do we describe these clients? Do we want these to come from referrals? Do we want to find two COIs? You've got to, and, and advice advisors will say, well, I don't know, you know, I, I mean, it could be all of it. And I'll share that even in, you know, classic selling, I ran large sales organizations in my, you know, way back corporate careers. And, you know, how did we come up with the numbers? How do we come up with the number of clients? We did a best guess, or we did, this is what the business needs, or, well, this is what we did last year. So extrapolating another 20% makes sense. So it doesn't have to be a perfect science. It needs to be a focus. And so I think that that's one area because of this hesitancy around sales and sales sales is dirty and we're not salespeople, there's a hesitancy to say we're going to commit, you know, that it's this many clients this year, it's this much revenue, you know, here's who we're going to, you know, ask to do some selling. These are the, you know, we've, we got 10% of our clients to refer last year. This year, we're going to get it to 25%. We're going to have two COIs. So it's really important to set some targets, back to, you know, where the mind's going to focus. If you put the emphasis on it, you're going to put more rigor around it. So, so that's one big piece that I think gets missed all the time. Just start with the plan. So is, is there a, a template around the plan? Like what things do I need to be sure to put in the plan? Just imagine like if I've never made a sales plan before, I'm trying to make a sales plan. I'm probably still struggling with like, wait, what exactly is supposed to be in this? <laughs> in this thing and what am I doing with it again? Exactly. Really good question. So, so one would be revenue goals. So what is it that we're hoping to do with our revenue this year? Increase of 5%, increase of 10%. Second would be looking at, are there certain types of clients that we're trying to attract? We were just with a group this week and one of their challenges is so many small clients with very low fees, but very high demands, pretty common in a lot of practices. Yep, familiar so, with those. <laughs> Yes, exactly. It does seem to be the the, the problem in, in a lot of places because you, know, you don't necessarily want to just kick them out. But on a go forward, you may want to be more directive of like, okay, so what sorts of clients, what size, what kind of fees are we targeting to? And in the plan, you, you can get somewhat specific if you think, okay, we want to do niche. So we want 50% of our new clients this year coming from our niche. So that's what I would call kind of the quantitative aspect. So you are going to outline quantitatively what are the goals that we're shooting for and, you know, we're going to measure to them each quarter to see where we're at. Then qualitatively, it's kind of to look at where do we need our business to be coming from. So I think in terms of, you know, three main buckets, but you know, how are we doing on client referrals? It's a good place to start because a lot of advisors aren't exactly sure. They have a good sense of which clients refer and which don't, but there, there is some rigor to looking at your client base, 
and being able to identify who's referring and who's not. So let's say I realize, wow, five of my clients refer all the time. The other 480 (laughs) are doing nothing. So, okay, could we get 10 more clients this year to refer? That's one bucket. Second bucket would be the COIs. So a lot of times we see in the sales plan what you need to look at is the culling down of relationships because an advisor might say, well, I'm so proud. I've got, you know, 32 COIs that I market to. Well, who's sending you business? Well, none of them, but I have 32. So can you cull down to three referring COIs? And so again, I called it qualitative. There is a quantitative component to some of this too inside the buckets, but you know, so what are my goals there? So I'm, I'm just imagining this, like I have 32 COIs, how many of them have referred, given you a referral, none that again, I think it's one of those, I don't know, traps we get into, like heard I was supposed to get COIs, went and tried to make connections with accountants and attorneys. (laughs) Got 32 business cards, put them in my CRM. I send them an email every three months on a quarterly basis, but I'm waiting for the referrals and they haven't showed up yet. <laughs> and that, and, and I don't want to let go of them. I mean, I, that I yeah. hear all the time, like, what if one pops? So sometimes, Michael, I'll tell them, I'm like, so guess what? Leave the 32 in your database if you've got this email that goes out, but do me a favor, figure out of those, what are the three that you actually want to put a sales plan around, right? That I'm going to go meet them, that I'm going to learn more about the business, that I'm going to create some sort of a, you know, marketing presentation just for them, whatever it is. Right. But, you know, pick the ones you're going to focus on. And then of course the last area is the either it's direct selling or increasing your brand because those are really the only two, you know, some firms do do a good job of, you know, direct marketing, calling all of that. Others I think do a very good job of getting known for something in their market. You know, I'm right. the expert in a certain sort of annuity. I'm the expert in business owners retiring whatever. And so what sorts of things do I need to be doing to raise visibility in that specific area. And that's where, so that does become oftentimes a little bit more of where the marketing supports the sales, but it does require you planning for it. If you're going to blog, if you're going to write articles, you're going to go speak. All these things require some sort of specific plan. What are you going to do? Who's going to do it? When you're going to do it? How much is going to cost you? And so It's not that the plan has to be 15 pages. This could be a two-page document, but it is just thinking through what are those numerical goals I'm aiming for? Is there any sort of descriptor around the types of clients I want, size, look and feel, niche, the buckets? What am I doing now in each of these buckets? Where do I want to be? And then I can come up with my tactics to, okay, what am I going to do next? Because let's take a, like, let's get really granular in sales. Let's say I have five clients who are referring. I want to increase that. So then my first step might be, let me go through, we call them the should be's and identify the 10 should be clients. These are people who should be referring. They like me, they're connected, 
they're not referring right now. And so they should be. And so here's the 10. Now I can plan my tactical sales approach around those 10. So eventually you got to get down to a very, it's no different than somebody who makes their living selling. We would call it territory management. Who am I going to call today? Right. You know, how many calls do I need to make? What do I need to get? But we just treat it a little bit differently in the advisory space because I'm not going to sit there and bang on the phones, right. but I am going to be very thoughtful and strategic and then get very tactical about specifically what steps I need to take. So beyond the start with the sales plan, right? So it's essentially to to me, this frames up like, where are we actually going to focus our energy? Like, yes. okay, I know I got a bunch of COIs, but like, we're going to try to work on these three. And I know I got a bunch of clients who could refer, but you know, we're going to get these 10 should be's going. So then I know where I'm putting my energy, where I'm putting my focus and, and hopefully have some metrics so I can figure out whether this actually worked. What comes next as I'm trying to, you know, bolster my not very salesy sales process? And so then next it is going to be, where am I going to focus my time and attention? So here is one of the biggest obstacles that advisors will will give us, and that is that there is no time. Got to watch the market. I've got to respond. Reactive, right? That's their favorite word. I'm very reactive. I can't be proactive. And not, I'm not bashing them. I mean, it does feel that way, right? Oh, yeah. My day was planned. We we are, like. (laughs) Life gets busy, the day gets full, and then stuff happens, so we have to react to it. Like it's just reactive is a fact of life. For exactly. I mean, this is this is how it goes. But but I do like to point out that just like with anything, if I don't start then to take the specific things I need to do and calendar them, I am not going to do them. And so that could be something like again, let's stick with the ten clients that I want to get the referrals from. And that is, a, for what I have found, one of the biggest untapped areas for most advisors to be able to get new sales from existing clients who know a lot of people you should be talking to. So I put the, you know, on my calendar that, you know, Michael's my client, I'm going to give him a call this week. And so what we try to teach advisors is that, but it's different, right? I'm not just calling you up and uh, how's it going, Michael? And hey, you know, I just was wondering, we talked about if there's anybody else that you know, and, you know, have you thought more about that? Of course, your response is going to be in the back of your mind, like, are you absolutely kidding me? Like, you know, how many other things I have going on right now? But your polite response is going to be, I, you know, I haven't, but I promise I'll keep thinking on it, Bev. You know, I love working with you. So it's yep. putting a plan in place to, you know, actually have a conversation where I'm being a little bit more honest about what my desire is. Michael, you know, you are such a valued client of mine and it has occurred to me that I don't do a very good job of letting even my own clients know that I want to not only be able to help more people out there, but that I'm not talking to enough people so that they know that I'm available here to help them. And you know me, I am the least salesy person around. So I'm not looking for an opportunity, but I'm wondering, you know, you're involved at your country club. And I know you've talked a lot about playing golf with John and playing golf with Paul. And you guys all sounds like you had a great year this year. I'm wondering, could I come to the country club? I'd be happy to treat, but, you know, and the three of us sit down. I just would like the chance to meet them and tell them a little bit more about what I do. 
So I hear it. It makes sense. Why is it when I think of doing that, I still feel icky? (laughs) Because it's not something that comes naturally. And so, so I just did it. My first thought would be, are you actually going to leave this call with me? Go and do that. No, but here's what you would be able to do. You would be able to practice on somebody who isn't your client until you get language that's comfortable enough for you to use. Because what's surprising to advisors who do finally, you know, take the plunge and do it is, you know, this is something, honestly, I wish I did have like a hundred dollars for every time this happened because I I would be, you know, sought after as, as one of the most wealthy people around because I've had so many times an advisor will call me and not only does the client respond positively to it or give them something else, right? They might say, John and Paul, are you kidding? You don't want to have lunch with those guys, but you know who we should be having lunch with at my club is, you know, Karen, holy cow. She, she is like running businesses. She's, that's who we should be talking with. I had one advisor, very, very low key individual. I mean, in fairness, I want to be clear, like most people we work with, are not comfortable with this language. (laughs) They're not comfortable doing this. And he was so hesitant. And, you know, I finally got him to kind of get over the the hump. And he he called this client of his who actually, it it works in a funeral home, but he's an advisory client. But what ended up happening through this conversation is that the guy wanted now has the advisor come into the funeral home because there's so many people when you're going through death and estate planning and all this, talk about all the financial implications. And so he was basically saying to his advisor, I had no idea that you wanted to grow the business. And my goodness, like based on what I do, we should be partnering together because you could help a lot of my clients. And so the point is to finally get there. It's almost never that the client is going to be like, well, you have some nerve. And if they do, you say, you know what? You're right. Sorry. I just, just really trying to figure out the best way to do this. So tell me about your golf game though. And you just change the subject and it's all forgotten. But to get up the confidence to do it, it really is just a matter of practice. It's role playing. It's, you know, asking your spouse on a Saturday morning, Hey, can, you know, will you play this client of mine? And you know, how does this sound? And it's getting language that's the right kind of language for you. Like I tell people, don't ever imitate me because I'm going to say it in a, I like to use humor. I like to kind of, you know, put something out there and make somebody laugh, but make them think about it. That's not for everybody. Other people are more serious or they want to be more, you know, detailed, whatever it is. So I just encourage to take the idea and then practice it until you get to the point where, okay, now I can do it. But it literally is practice, hearing yourself, talking to your phone. Did I stumble over that? Did that sound really rote? How can I get more comfortable with it? And then do it. <laughs> yeah, I I think you make a, a really good and, and very underappreciated point about how important it is to actually practice saying it out loud, like just literally saying it out loud yeah. that 
well, either sometimes we just haven't even sort of rehearsed the scripts in our heads. We just have to kind of get the words out and, and figure out how we say it, that that feels natural and flows to us. But, you know, for a lot of advisors I've, I've met and talked to over the years, you know, always have conversations like, well, you know, just tell me about your firm. Like, you know, what, what do you do and, and who do you do it for? And, you know, they'll talk about what the, what the business looks like and what they do. And because I'm just fascinated by business models these days, like I'll, Ask, well, you know, what do you do? Well, you know, we have a $110 million on our management. You've been doing this for a bunch of years and, and we work with retirees and, and you know, have, uh, have a really strong firm and provide these great services. I'm like, oh, that's so awesome. What is your uh, female? What does it look like? Oh, I'm like, what? Like, yes. if you can't even say it to me in like a conference business meeting context, I really wonder how that conversation goes when your client inevitably at some point asks, like, "Hey, your services sound great, but you know, but what, like, what do you charge?" I just want to understand what this is, what this is going to cost, and and that for a lot of us, like, we build it up in our heads of what we want to do and what we're going to say, and we and we fumble it on the finish line when we actually have to say it out loud because often we've like we've literally never said it out loud or the only other time we said it out loud was in from another prospective client in a relatively high stakes situation where we got nervous and 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 fumbled the words in the exact same way and that there's a lot of power to just sitting down and and not only kind of this conversation like how am i going to ask this client with intention to you know to to work with me to find more business opportunities in their personal network but even just getting down to things like can you actually really say out loud to another person proudly and confidently here is what i charge yes for my for my services and there's just this effect of i can write it out i can think it in my head we all have those like scripts going in our head of like i so know what i'm going to say the next time i get in this situation but it's not the same as when you actually try to say it out loud to another human being and doing that and repeating it enough times that you can say it confidently and directly. And, and you know, it, you think about how easy it is today. You set up your, you know, smartphone to video. You can even video yourself, you, you know, be able to see how comfortable do you look. And you keyed on it because people will say, well, I'm still not saying it to the client. But when you start to hear yourself, when you practice it, when you get a little bit more comfortable, the truth is that now when I pick up the phone and I call that client, I am more at ease. But if I've only let it roll around in my head, or I have people tell me all the time, well, I can't say it the way you say it. And I tell them, don't say it the way I say it. I don't want you to say it the way I say it. I just want you to take the idea and then go practice what is a comfortable way for you to say it. But I find like, even when you say that, like we, we practice it in our heads. I know. Well, that's I'm like, it. I'm so like, I'm listening to this podcast right now. And like when it, <laughs> when it finishes, I've got like 15 minutes left on my commute and I'm totally going to be thinking about this in my head about how I'm going to say it for this client later today. And, and I'm sure there are people that are going to be listening to this and that's exactly what's happening in their heads. But, but this point of like, a, you, you have to say it out loud for real, and you have to say it out loud to another human being that's looking back at you. Yes. You're, not, you're not just allowed to say it out loud in the car. That helps, but like you have to be able to say it when another human being is looking at you 
and and be able to say it. And and if you can't, that's I think an, an issue unto itself. Of like, is you know, is your problem that you don't like selling, or is your problem that deep down you don't you don't actually feel like you have the value and that you're worth what you're charging, or that you're not proud of your company or the products it sells or the service it provides? And like, are you are you holding yourself back in the sales process because you're just not actually proud and confident of what you're offering? Because if, if you were, why wouldn't you be really excited to tell everybody about it? And that's it. And that does, I think, come back to you know where you started, which is so important around the reframing. Because again, I don't believe in advisors calling the client up and saying, hey, I really need to grow my business. How can you help me? And I have sat in on sessions and heard people advise advisors to do this. And it's like, oh, I don't know. That sounds a lot about me, the advisor, not about you, the client. But I think if you take this attitude that those clients who mean a lot to you know people in their lives who are trying to make decisions that you could help with making those decisions. And if you don't let the client know that that is your goal, that you want to be able to raise visibility, get out there and help more people, be able to be with the people that you know they're circulating with when they need you, and that you're not looking to quote unquote sell, you're looking to make people just aware you know, I have never once had an advisor come back to me and say a client took my head off because they couldn't believe how brazen I was to say this to them. To to tell them what I do when they already pay me for it. <laughs> how bold. <laughs> I literally am and never. And again, I'm talking a lot of people who are, you know, so uncomfortable with this. But more I've heard the stories where they come back, you know, or, or a client will say, I had no idea you could take on more clients. I would love you to talk to, you know, John over here. I didn't know. I thought you were tapped out. <laughs> Or the or the breadth of our services, you know that that to me yes. is the other one that that usually creates huge gaps even with existing clients. If the if the first thing you did was help them out with a life insurance situation, like hey, say it, they probably don't think of you as your financial advisor. They think of you as their life insurance person. And if you if you help them with the four hundred one k rollover, like you're their four hundred one k rollover gal. Yes, you don't always get framed as full comprehensive advisor, you're the person that solved that one particular thing for them. Because again, we like to, you know, our clients will slot us in with specificity, even if we're trying to be generalists. And and just going back to clients saying like, you know, here's actually the full breadth of the stuff that I do and all the different ways that I can help clients and work with them. I know for a lot of firms, just having that conversation, clients suddenly come back like, well, I didn't even realize you do all this different stuff. Because they only thought of us in the one context that they personally engaged us because they, as you said, they literally haven't been informed of all the things that we do. And that, you know, that does bring us to another point, which is around, I, I call it, you know, reselling or retelling, but, but it's another important piece that you just keyed on, which is that, you know, we tend to take a client relationship for granted that we believe that they know us, that they know what we're capable of, that at a minimum, they would call us to ask if we do this, but that's not the way that it works. And so there is that opportunity, I think, to 
be able to retell and resell. So, you know, the client example to say, hey, I don't know if you even remember, but when you came to me and, you know, you were faced with this, you know, decision as to whether or not you should buy into this business or not. And, and, and do you remember how we went through all of this? And, and sometimes I think, you know, our relationship is so much around the buying and selling of the business that I just think it's my responsibility to make sure, you know, you know that when you encounter a personal issue or if you and your wife would like to sit down or certainly even anybody in your extended family, you know, these are the other things we do that are similar to this issue that we resolved for you way back when. Because you as the client, you're not thinking about this. You're you're on to the next thing. So right. that's another piece that I think you have to get good at, which is kind of that retelling and reselling and reminding them what you've done, but then also being able to say what else you're able to do. So talk to us about kind of sales process itself. I've mm-hmm. I've I've got a prospect. They contacted me somehow, maybe they got referred to me. Like I'm 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 going to have my first approach meeting with them next week. I want to do better at this than I've done in the past. What should that selling process itself actually look like when when it's done well? So a few, you know, kind of high points, I guess we'll hit on. One is it's so important always in any sort of exchange with a prospect or quite frankly, even a client to, to set an expected outcome. So you think about it, we're going to sit down and meet. I've got this prospect coming in. Maybe they have even worked with another advisor, but they may not know what to expect. They don't know what we're here to do. And so we love our agendas, but we don't actually put out an intention around what is the expectation for this meeting. So that's an important thing to be able to say, you know, thank you for coming in, really hoping from my vantage point that, you know, when we get to the end, all of learned enough about you to be able to share if we can help you where I think we can help you and what that would look like. And then we'd be able to set up a next meeting to, to talk about specifics. Because we're, we're setting the expectation from the client's end. This, this exactly. isn't necessarily about like you need your, you need your goal as the advisor about what you're trying to get out of this meeting. It, it's specifically like, this is literally, you will say this to the prospect so they understand what we're trying to get to at the end of this meeting. Exactly. And you do it for two reasons. I mean, again, back to that pink elephant, when you set an intention with somebody about where things are going, they automatically move in that direction. And so rather than us both sitting there trying to figure out what should we do next steps, you have said it. Now you do then need to ask them, of course, does that work for you? Do you have another expectation of this meeting? I mean, think about that, Michael. Like we go into so many exchanges with people where we don't state it, we don't ask them, and and neither of us are exactly sure where it is we're going with this, and we just hope that we're going to wind up there. So it's it's so much easier on me if I state it, and then you might say, oh, whoa, 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 like this is a totally exploratory thing. My current advisor is really blowing it on numbers. I just want to know about your performance. Like, I want to know that as the advisor out of the box. I want to know where this person is at and what they're thinking about before I share everything that I need to share. So it accomplishes two goals. It helps me drive them towards where we want to get to, but then it also gives me the chance to ask them and kind of establish like what 
what is it that they are, you know, kind of here to do? And so that's an important piece. And we will sometimes do whole workshops where we have people practice just that piece three and four times because for whatever reason, we don't do it naturally. But when you start doing it, it changes the entire tenor of, of all of your sales meetings. And you can do it with clients too. Every quarterly meeting does not have the same desired outcome, same expected success, and so you want to be clear and then you want to, you know, have them stated. So that's number one. Number two is, you know, you never want to give away too much until you've learned about the other person. Of course, we could say, well, that's pretty clear, but we do tend to, you know, talk only about like specific questions around, you know, goals and what they've done so far financially, risk tolerance, whatever. And so one of the things that we want to be able to do is start to, you know, just generally ask some of the why questions. Like, you know, why are you, why are you just out of curiosity? Like, why are you talking to an advisor now? you know, why, why not six months ago or why not six months from now? Just be interested in what's happening. You know, have you had any experiences? And if so, what, you know, what are those? I'm just wondering what your, what your view is, what your impression is of what we do and what I'm, you know, here to be able to help you with. And these are like, if you look at some of the best sales books, right, these are classic kind of sales questions because it does give me a bit of insight into a person's headspace, right? Where are they at? Why are they here? What are they doing? And so that's a better place to start than, you know, oh, so what are some of your goals and what have you done? Because now I'm starting to get myself a little in a box and I really don't know from a qualification perspective if this person really is ready to make a decision or whether they're interested or not. So one thing, state the expectation, ask them their expectation, and then think about your questions a little bit differently and more about kind of the, the why and what do they know and what perceptions do they have before you ever even open a pitch book or start talking about what you can do or quite frankly, even start talking about their goals and what they're trying to accomplish you know, our favorite topic is ourselves. And so it is rare if you ask someone like the way I'm talking about for them, not just to simply answer. Right. That's a couple things. So then, you know, then it is about qualification. That's an important piece too, which really is. Define qualification for us. So how serious is the prospect about making a decision? How suited are they for my firm and what I do? And how willing are they to pay for what I do to accomplish whatever it is that they, those are kind of like the three tenants, right? That I'm going to try to qualify on. And so it is important to ask about decision-making process. Now, I like to think of it as, you know, you as the advisor are the expert you're the one that's onboarded a number of clients, you've talked to people. I think it makes sense for the advisor to lay out and say, you know, here's typically how we've seen the process work. You know, we'll have this conversation, like to then have a follow-up, learn a lot more about some of the things you're trying to accomplish. Then by the third meeting, I'll come and I'll be able to lay out for you some of the results of the planning process, you know, what's going to vary, of course, depending on 
what sort of practice you have. But then by the fourth meeting, you know, we always find people are ready to make a decision. You may not choose to hire us, but to hire us or not hire us, you know, does that make sense for you for your timing? And again, this is going to help me with serious, if it's like, if it's a couple, but only one person showing up, perfectly fine to state, you know, we really do need to, at some point in one of these four meetings, have your spouse join us. We've just found over time, we're going to do a much more effective job if we have the chance to speak with both of you. And it is always, you know, our goal to do the best work for you. So you do want to lay out for them what you have found to be the best process for decision-making and then confirm with them whether that's okay. Cause that's where you're going to start to get somebody wavering a little bit or telling you they're not ready to do that or they're going to need a whole lot more information. You know, advisors have to be careful. You, you all are super smart people. You know a lot. You're tied in in the markets. You, you know, you've got a lot of investment expertise. You can fall into the trap where people will just sit and pick your brain and get a lot of information, but not necessarily be a truly qualified prospect. So that's one way to make sure that we're clear together expectations in this process, how many times we're going to meet, how much information I as the advisor I'm going to give you, and that you're going to confirm that that's enough for you to be able to make a decision. And it strikes me just, you know, the, the other piece of that conversation is, is, or you literally just clarify that they're a tire kicker and they're not actually interested in, in, in working with you. And I feel like for a lot of us, oh my gosh, I've got a prospect on the line. Like I just have to go, (laughs) I got to go full tilt to get this one on board because I don't know where the next one's going to come from. That like rather than clarifying, is this person even actually really a good fit? Were they really here and ready to buy? We sometimes get stuck in this mode of, I'm just like, I got to try to close them. I got to try to get them across the finish line. I got to get them on board as as a client and don't take that pause to say, maybe this person actually just isn't really a good fit in the first place and they weren't really that ready to come on board. So trying to do three, three follow-up meetings to pull them along is probably just a waste of time. Just recognize this person isn't a good fit and move on. And that, so I think it is, Michael, kind of thinking about it as you do have to take a bit of a more directive role. I mean, you're doing it always around the client's benefit and you're doing it always around, you know, just making sure that we're clear and helping to, to clarify process, but really you can so easily be led in a sales process. Any, anybody can where we call it the jump, how high problem. And so what happens is, you know, if I don't lay it out, here's the expectation, you know, are you in agreement with that? Does that make sense? Now I'm at the second meeting. I just want to clarify again. We talked about four meetings, you know, are we on track? Is there anything else that's come up? We're afraid to give voice to this. And so what happens is now in the prospect's mind, they're thinking, I'm just not ready to do this. And advisor's thinking, I got to give them everything I can to show them how you know great it will be to work with me. And so then what else do you need? Oh, well, could you just run some numbers on this? Oh, do you think that you could just provide that? And so there we are, right? Jump, how high? Jump, how high? And and I've had you know a, a thousand advisors over the years say to me, but you know now they don't respond. 
respond. I sent the proposal and I'm not hearing anything. It, you know, a sure thing. Oh, they just went to Florida for six months and I can't get them to answer the phone. And and that's because there there wasn't that, you know, serious intent on the part of the prospect to really get to an end decision. So you have to control it. Or or at least just clarify up front, like, are they yes. actually here yes. to get to an end decision? And you know, if they're not, like, that's cool. We're gonna have this meeting. And then yes. this will be the last meeting. <laughs> like, it was nice to meet you. When you decide you're ready to do something, we're happy to talk to you again. But I don't have to keep pushing you for meetings if I just clarified how serious are you about moving forward and we've already actually figured out that they're really just in an exploratory phase. And because and, think about it, and again, if we go back to the reality is, you know, none of you have tons of time. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of requirements, commitments, things that have to be done. And so here, in a way, you're allowing somebody, in my view, to, you know, kind of steal time and you don't know that it's actually leading anywhere. And I just don't know right. too many advisors that have as much available time that they're actually able to do that. <laughs> Give it, you know, right. again, to your point right now, we're sitting here. Okay, let's make the best of it. I have calls all the time with people just, okay, hey, I'm happy to give you some insights and ideas, you know, but I know we're not going anywhere with it, but I'm not going to spend any more time with you after this. <laughs> and and so it is a little bit being jealous of your of your own time and realizing that there there isn't a lot of it to waste. So you you've got to be very strategic about where you focus. Focus it. One well, to me, at least, going going through this part of it was just a, I know a, a mindset shift of you going from okay, I've I've, I've got a prospective client, like I I, I got to pursue this, I got to see what we can do, I got to see if we can get the get the get the business, you know, and and feeling bad if I didn't succeed, and you know, I'm a fairly competitive person, so that would just make me want to try harder. To stepping back and and saying like is this person actually really a good fit for the business? Are they really looking to make a decision in the, in the near term future here? Because if, if they're not like, I'll have to feel bad if I don't get them because they weren't actually really ready to buy. Like we just can have some mercy for both of us by saying, okay, this, this person just really isn't a great fit. Like I don't, I don't have to count it in my loss column. If I don't turn them into a client they're just not a good fit and they're not ready right now. So move on and focus on who's actually qualified to do business with you and try to get them to, to do business with you. You know, it's funny because classic selling, right? If you are, let's say you start as maybe one of the, uh, an outbound phone caller, it's a tough job. And so you're just calling and calling and calling all day long. But one of the things that they'll tell you to kind of keep your spirits up is it's exciting to get the no's because, you know, if every, say, 20 people you call, 19 are no's, right? If you, if you get enough no's, you got to eventually get to a yes. So right? just, you know, right? accumulate your 100 no's. And there have to be a few yeses in there. Oh, like taking me back to my dark days of starting out and cold calling. <laughs> but right, but there, and hey, I mean, there are few people. I've only met one guy in my whole life who told me he loved cold calling. I was like, you're lying. Nobody likes it. But anyway, but but think about it. But there is something to that thought process because, and the reason they're saying that is because you've got to keep your spirits up and you've got to also realize though that not everybody is going to be a fit. And it's the same in our sort of work. You yep. know, I'm, I kind of get to a point where I'm so happy if I can 
early on realize, you know what, <laughs> this is not a firm we can help, or this is not a fit for us, or these people aren't serious, whatever, just because there's so many people that we can help. And yeah. I want to be spending my time there. And, and this is the same thing I say to advisors. So what that the, celebrate the fact that you learned early on in the process this yep. wasn't going to work because what that does is frees you up to go find the people that are going to be so excited that they got you for their advisor. Well, and, and one of the things that I know crystallized this for me from from your book originally, like at some point, I think you you said something in the effect like, not everybody you meet's a prospect. Sometimes they're just curious and they're friendly and they like to talk. <laughs> yes, and <laughs> like that's that's cool, and you can have a lovely conversation, but like. Don't fool yourself they're even a good qualified prospect and then don't spend a bunch of time trying to get them because they were friendly and talked to you. That's that's not what actually makes them a qualified prospect to potentially do business with you. It gets back to, as you said, like, do they have a need for what you do? Are they willing to pay? And are they actually serious about making a decision? Yeah, no, I mean, we talk a lot about behavioral style and you, you have people who are just verbal. They're upbeat, they're happy people, they love to engage and, you know, they're the ones that say, oh, I've just got, you know, 30 minutes for you and then two hours later, they're still talking, yeah. but 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 you, but you they're really hard sometimes to pin down and you start asking those questions about, well, you know, four meetings and again, whatever, you know, um, could be two meetings, could be 10 meetings, whatever your process is have a process though. Let's add that in there. Make sure that you do have a clearly outlined process. But yes, and and it's good because you may be enjoying them and that's fine, but it's good to have something to pin someone like that down because it could all feel wonderful, go nowhere. And then it doesn't feel so wonderful. So presuming I've I've qualified them, I'm kind of going through this process. Like I I, I set an ex- expected outcome. I've I've tried to learn more about the other person instead of just going on and on about myself so I can understand the parts they actually care about. I've, I've had some conversation to qualify them. You know, do they actually have a need for what I do? Are they willing to pay? And are they serious about making a decision? What comes next in this sales process? So I want to be able to ask enough questions. And again, you, you're going to always frame this by saying that, you know, there's, there's a lot that we're able to do. We actually have a pretty robust process. I want to make sure that I'm focused on the things that are most meaningful to you. You know, your time is really valuable. So I'd like to ask you some questions first, just so I can make sure that I'm focusing on the things that are important to you. Again, if we, if we can frame things of value for somebody else, especially if you talk to them about their time, there is not a human being walking the planet who won't acknowledge, yeah, I'd like to make sure that we're focused on what's meaningful and that this this time is valuable. And so then I, I kind of get that permission, if you will, to ask the questions because it's in their best interest. Then I want to be selective. One of the things I've seen a lot of advisors do is that they will then kind of go into their whole story. So, you know, it's it's not necessarily that an advisor sits there with their pitch book, but they may talk a lot about all of what they do or how they do it. But if you've asked the questions and you've kind of heard what the prospect says, you want to make sure that you're conscious about using some of their language and describing it the way that they've described it and being able to feed back a little bit to say, well, you know, I'm going to 
talk with you about, let's say it's our overall planning process and all these different pieces. But it was interesting to me when you talked about the struggle that you're having, having had that fifth child you weren't expecting around college. You know, we have a specific, you know, area of focus. Let me, I really want to tell you a little bit about our specialists there. And, and then you go into the most powerful tool that you should have in your arsenal, which is storytelling. And this is the most undervalued, <laughs> high gain sort of thing that every advisor needs to learn how to do really well. And that's being able to understand where that prospect is at and then share a story that is relevant to that person. When we do workshops on this, Michael, I have this one quote and I, and I love it because it talks about how the research now shows us that stories are actually the only way to change someone's mindset. Data doesn't do it. Research doesn't do it. You know, burrowing them with information doesn't do it. Telling someone a story that they can see themselves in and relate to is how we get people to start thinking about something differently. And so I think advisors undervalue it because it's like, oh, boring, boring. But that's where then you can start to really connect with your prospect. And then the other pieces are to be really clear. And this goes back to what you were saying earlier about confidence in the fee. But to, to be able to state what you're willing to do as part of the sales process And what you do once somebody becomes a client, because that can vary, right? Some advisors will actually run the plan or they'll do a model portfolio or they'll, you know, come back with changes that they would make to what the prospect currently has done. Some don't believe that that's, I'm not a big proponent of giving a whole lot away, but you want to be clear too. You know, these are things I'll do for the rest of the process, but then, you know, we will get to a point where it'll be important for you to make a a decision. And I always like to also point out that you need to use the language that It's not my job to necessarily make you hire me. It's my job to help you reach a decision that you are confident about. That's an interesting way to frame it. It's not my job to get you to hire me. It's my job to help you make a decision you're confident about. Yes, because that way we can close it somehow right? And, and you almost inevitably do get the business when you do that because, right. <laughs> because you're you're being really clear that it, you're not there to try to just sign them up. You're there to help them think this through and know, is this right for me or not right for me? And so that's also another thing from a qualification perspective. You, you don't want some, it may be you that says, you know, as we've gone through this, I don't know that we are the right advisor for you right now. Of course, that's when they want to, of course, work with you. <laughs> right. As you say no. yeah, I, uh, ne- negative selling strategies is a whole other discussion. For yes, that's another discussion. And so once I'm going through this process of connecting them with, you know, hopefully some, some kind of story, here's how I've helped another person that was a similar situation to yours and what we did so they can start connecting to like, oh, I could see myself in that in that role as well. So then what comes next? And then you have to move them again back to, you know, we've talked again about the four meetings. So the next time we meet, you know, we'll be going through what you've given me so far on the plan. 
my expectation is that after we do that, you know, you will be in a position to know if this is the right decision for you or not. Do you see anything that might get in the way of being able to make a decision at that point in time? This is another thing that people are very, very hesitant to do because they'll call it like planting a negative seed. Why do I want to ask if something's going to get in the way? And I like to say that just because you asked it doesn't make it real. It's going to be right. swimming around in there whether you ask or not. And so you want to know <laughs> if something's going to get in the way. And so it's another one of those things, back to what we talked about, talking out loud and practicing. I mean, you do need to practice it because not many people are comfortable with it. But I'll tell you, that's another place where now I've learned, well, you know, when you were telling me this story about this other family, I started to think, I don't know that my family actually is ready to make this decision. Well, heck, I want to know that now because I don't want to go run your plan for you, sit down with you again, do all the rest of the stuff. You've already made up your mind. And then you've got to get them to commit. And I never would put an agreement in front of somebody until I'm sure that, this is definitely, if we go through this, I talked to you about my 1% fee. You know, we always charge, I don't know, $3,500 to run the plan. So I'm going to lay all of that out. I've got to be honest with you. We often encounter people that get very busy. They get distracted. I don't like to just send that. Could we, you know, set up a time that we could, if the person is available to you, that we could sit down or if they're not available to you, that I could send it to you. But then, you know, maybe we could jump on the phone together just to make sure everything's clear. Well, and, and just going for that, that part, I, I guess like the traditional sales, sales labels going for the close to me was one of the, the big things that impacted me from your, from your book as well, that, that just, I think recognizing even for a lot of my own prior sales process that, you know, really at the end of that meeting, it basically came down to, well, I told them about all the good stuff that we do. So I'm sure they'll see that they should hire me. (laughs) Exactly. And, And never actually quite got to the like, so, you know, with everything we've discussed, it sounds like we're a really good fit and that I can help you solve your problem. So I, I, I'd love to work with you. Can I give you an agreement to sign and we can start working together? And, and like just, again, like saying it, being able to say it out loud, not, not faltering on it, that, you know, it's, it's sort of that moment of ultimate tension. Like you, you put yourself out there and you'll see if you get rejected, right? For, at least for me, like I start having horrible flashbacks to like trying to, date someone when I was young, like, you know, that, that moment where you got to go ask someone, <laughs> yep. like, will you be in a relationship with me and wonder whether they're going to say yes or no and be really afraid that they're going to say no and that it's going to feel awkward. But like, if you never get to that moment of actually asking someone, like, can we do business together? I think we're a good fit. I'd like to work with you. Can I send you an agreement? Like, if you don't ask, very few people just sort of spontaneously volunteer, like, Oh, well, you know, Mr. Advisor, you were so fantastic about talking about yourself for the past 40 minutes that I would love to just hand you my life savings now. You know, but I like that you actually used the date analogy because that's what I try to say, right? I mean, we want to be asked. 
we do want to be asked. The prospect wants you to ask. They don't want to be sitting there wondering if, so are we at the point where I ask them if we should work together? I mean, think about that, right? Yeah. Like if you think it's awkward to you, it's probably awkward for them too. <laughs> right? So that's what's so funny about it. It's like, it's not a natural expectation. It's like any sort of thing where if I would like something from you, in this case, a decision for or against, I need to ask you, what's the decision? And I know certainly reflecting back, like this was probably the place that I dropped the ball the most of just, you know, well, I feel like we had a great meeting. Let me know if you want to move forward, like, or even some home, like go home and think about it because that was the ultimate cop out of like, well, I don't have to ask them to do business with me on the spot. I'm going to tell them to go home and think about it. And like, not that I'm one for advocating high pressure sales, but like you're literally expediting them out the door without making a decision. It kind of slows them down from making a decision. (laughs) Well, and again, see, that's where, and I, I just think so much of this, Michael, is just kind of trying to think about it differently because asking isn't, and that's the problem with sales language. I mean, I hate so much of it. Like, go for the jugular. Yeah. I mean, even think about it, right? I mean, you know, overcome their objection. I'm like, oh my gosh. Yeah, how very about this, Right? How about listen yeah. to their concern and address it? I mean, could we just simply talk? talk about this differently. And so same thing, right? I mean, asking someone, you know, what is your decision? It's not necessarily like, okay, go for the clothes. And if you have done all these things, you set the expectations, you've told them how long it would take, you understand enough about them, you've told them a story, you brought, it should somewhat be natural. Now, the polite thing to do is to then ask them, (laughs) would you like to work with me? And by the way, I mean, I I do this all the time. And at this point, it's a very, it feels very natural because it's true for me. Like I say, we would really like to partner with you. We would like to be your partner and have you hire us. So we really are hoping that, you know, next step, that's what you'll decide. You know, can we talk about what you'd like to do? Because I genuinely want to work with someone. So what is so bad about that? That seems to me like a respectful kind of polite thing to do. So as you look overall, having you know, done this with lots of advisors over the years, like what do we I don't know, understand the least or misunderstand the most about the selling process with a prospect? As advisors, like what do we, what do we what do we not get? I really would. I do think that in some ways we come around to where we started, you know, talk about like clothes. I, I, I do think that it is, it is really the misperception that letting people know what you do, how you can help them and that you genuinely want to work with them and do good work is somehow this negative, dirty, awful thing. When really fundamentally, that is what all advisors want to do. And I have yet to meet one that is simply in this because it's a great way to make a living. I mean, that's like a wonderful outcome, 
But most advisors I know do this because they love this business. They really want to be able to transform people's lives. They feel that they have the ability to do that with the tools available to them. And they, you know, genuinely are committed to doing the right thing. So why in the world wouldn't you want everybody to know that? And so it's, it's that disconnect and somehow keeping that frame on it that says, you know, selling has to be this dirty thing when it's really, truly, in my view, for the work that you all do and what you can bring to the table, not even remotely about that. So, so tell us a, a bit about your own business. Like we, we've talked for quite a bit here of all the different sales and marketing ideas and, and, and strategies of you know, what you've learned and how you work with advisors. But can you actually just tell us a little bit about like, how do you work with advisors? What is your business and background? So we have an interesting business model because we did start really as a growth firm. Our our backgrounds are in selling and marketing and you know being able to work with advisors and and bring them tools and ways of thinking about things to help them grow and everything from strategically how do you make it a part of your business to tactically what are the words that you use a lot of what we've been talking about here. So and we do a lot lot of marketing development. We do website development. We do marketing materials. We help with value props. So all of that kind of front office growth related and, and everything from training to literally going into a firm and helping them with, you know, coaching of individuals or, or getting their story tightened. But it's interesting because over the years would find that the tools we'd put in place would sometimes not be effective. And so we started to recognize this thing that I fondly refer to as the human element. Right. And so we, <laughs> those doggone people kept getting in the way. And so we started to learn a lot about behavioral and communication and, you know, where teams get stuck. And so we really have carved out, I think, a nice niche because we really get the, the human side of it. So a lot of our clients use us for organizational change, for team building, but we are business people at heart and we're about the growth and we're about what's practical and what's going to help the firm to really be able to, to thrive. And so consulting, training, coaching, and then the marketing, but there all those pieces will sometimes come together and we pull all the elements in to, to help an advisory firm be more effective. And we've been really fortunate. We've got great relationships with many of the major custodians, some asset management firms, where we've been able to build, you know, broad programs that then they can roll out to their constituents. So we've taken a lot of our stuff and been able to make it so that it's digestible on a broad basis, which is really exciting too. And so I just got to ask, like, what, what's it like running a, like, growth firm doing sales and marketing training? Like, <laughs> do we practice what we preach? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, what's the, there's like a circular thing there. Like, what's it, 
what's it like doing sales and marketing for a firm that trains in sales and marketing? <laughs> so, you know, what is the funniest thing? And I had, a, so I had a client this week, we were rolling out this big program. We've been working on it for quite some time. I was with their group. We had about 35 of their advisors in the room. And it, it was so funny because one of the people came up to me and she said, you know, what's so fascinating about watching you training our people? She said, I feel like the whole process with you to decide to pick your firm and then build these pro it, like you actually do all the things that you teach <laughs> yeah. us and I was like well isn't that <laughs> because I do have to tell you and I it kind of works it kind of <laughs> works but I, I won't name names Michael but in my career I've just come across so many quote unquote you know like sales trainers and I'm like really like you're training people but you have no finesse when it actually comes to <laughs> you know your own sales process yeah. So we do really try to practice what we preach, but we do, you have to put an emphasis on relationships. You have to understand what somebody's really dealing with. We never walk in and say, we have all the answers or we've done this so many times. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We've heard this before. You know, we always want to learn about the client. We have a lot of tools to bring, but you know, we're very much about trying to make sure that we understand the person we're working with, the firm, be it small or large. And, and we're doing something for them and then trying to make sure we, you know, we do stay visible and, you know, do all the other things you have to do to keep your, keep your brand alive. So what advice would you give to younger or newer advisors looking into, to come into the industry today? Cause I, I know even the nature of what it means to be doing selling in our business has changed quite a bit. As we said, you know, it wasn't that long ago that you started in cold calling. I, I, I started in cold calling you that it's a different world today. And so like, where would you tell someone coming into the business today to be focusing if they want to figure out how to, have a, how to have a good trajectory of, of eventually being good at sales and business development? So I really would encourage them to spend some time learning the relationship side of things. I, I, I just was asked by one of our custodian clients actually to you know put together something and they they presented it to me as soft skills. And so I said to them, we have to stop using that term because the soft stuff is going to become <laughs> the game-changing stuff in this business. I mean, if yeah. we become commoditized, it's going to be that, you know, EQ right? Emotional quotient, relationship stuff that's going to differentiate. And so, and I tell this, I, I teach at a school with a finance track. I tell every finance student who'll listen to me, I'm like, get really good at this. I mean, you need to fundamentally be very good at your craft, but don't over, if you get a chance, take psychology courses, take them. Because that's, I, I really do think learning that aspect and understanding the people aspect and how much money means to people, how hard it is for them to make decisions around it. Look at all the behavioral finance stuff now, biases. I would strongly encourage, I just think you're going to be so much better at your craft if you also understand that aspect, have some depth there. As we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And, and one of the themes that always comes up is even just the word success means different things to different people. And so you know, you've had this 
career of doing sales training, growth, and and business development, and build a firm doing it, and teaching other advisors to do it, and and build kind of an objectively successful business. But how do you define success for yourself at this point? So I really put a priority on loving what I do. I'll say that over the many years and, you know, in the last few, we have a policy here that we do only work with people that we enjoy. I had many in my <laughs> career that I didn't. And so it's where I do this because I, I really, truly love it. And, but I want to also work with people who really want to make a change and, you know, are, are just good people to work with. So that's a big piece of success for us. And we do, we actually look at it and say, okay, here's who we have right now. You know, yep. They're all a 10 on 10. So that's an important thing. To be honest, I mean, success to me also is being able to do other things that I love. I, so I teach. Uh, do I have time to teach? Uh, no, but I'm passionate about the next generation. And then I like to, you know, I'm I, pretty close with my kids. So spend time there and I do a lot of animal rescue work. And so I like to be able to do that too. So the fact that I can do work I love with people I really enjoy, but then also be able to have these extensions of things that are meaningful to me, that is absolutely the the height of success for me. Oh, very cool. I, I love it. And I really appreciate you, Beverly, taking the time to, to join us. And we'll make sure we have some links out in the show notes as well to the book, which I, I truly do highly recommend. Like it, it had a very big impact on me and out to your firm as well. So for folks that are listening, this is episode 152. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 152, we'll, we'll have links out to all of Beverly's materials. But thank you so much for joining us, Bev, on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My honor to be here, Michael. Thank you. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com. <laughs>